please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17. I'll be reading Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we all recognize that we are unclean, leprosy ridden in our souls, people who are desperate to cry out. And you are so faithful to pour out mercy upon all who call upon your name. So will we see this by the grace of your working this morning? May those who have never been cleansed be cleansed. May those of us who have been cleansed see more clearly what you call us to as we bury our faces in the dirt before your feet daily. Amen. Let me start off with a series of questions. Is everything in your life going the way that you had hoped? Do you have pain? Do you have struggles? Do you have as much money as you think that you would like? Is your marriage perfect? Child-rearing? Smooth as glass, easy. How about you who are students? How are your studies going? Relationships? Your health. All right, let me ask another series of questions. Have you been delivered from the judgment to come? Has Jesus so encountered you that He has turned your heart to see and to embrace the gospel of your salvation. Is eternal life really your possession? If, if you answer yes to that, 
then no matter the answer to all the other questions, you ought to be one of the most grateful and happy persons on earth. You got food? You got a car that works? You got a roof over your head? You got a church? You got breath in your lungs? Here's the message this morning. Then don't be like the nine lepers. Be like the one leper and live Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. And crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Forget not all. His benefits. You know the story of the guy who was lost in the woods for days and then found, and he's telling his story, and he tells about how he came to the place where he was so frightened, he got on his knees and he prayed. And then someone asked him, well, did God answer your prayer? And he says, oh, no. God didn't have a chance to answer my prayer because a guide found me and led me out. Like that man, many times we're blinded to the unbelievable blessings daily in our lives. We take so much for granted. The sun comes up. It's supposed to. It's, that's what the sun's supposed to to do. We take for granted flowers and birds singing, children playing. They're not in a hospital. Our own health. We expect those things and deep down many of us at times think that we deserve them. And thus we are ungrateful people. And we constantly miss opportunities to thank and praise and glorify God for life and the simple things. Ingratitude is one of the lowest manifestations of human sinfulness. And God loves His people so much that He commands us to give to Him thanks. Psalm 30 verses 11 to 12 just guides us in this saying, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. And you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you. 
forever. This story this morning, Jesus healing the ten lepers, it illustrates the Christian life of thanksgiving, praise, worship, glorifying God up against the non-Christian heart. So if you're there, Luke 17, beginning with verse 11, Luke again lets us know he's been in his narrative. He's already got Jesus turning towards Jerusalem where he's going to his destiny. And so he reminds us again as he picks up in verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So now he's somewhere in the region between Samaria, Galilee, up north, and he enters a village. And verse 12 says, And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. All right, let's get a little bit of historical and biblical background to kind of feel what's happening there. The Bible, specifically the law of Moses, gave instructions on what to do with people, with Israelites who contract skin diseases of leprosy. And leprosy in the Jewish Israelite community under God caused the person to be unclean ceremonially cannot worship with the community and go into the tabernacle or the temple and were ostracized. And leprosy is just this big word that can refer to different kinds of skin diseases from some minor ones that you'll get over and then now you go and become ceremonially cleansed to major ones. Let me give you a taste of what most likely was going on with these ten to one degree or another. The scholar William Barclay lays it out. Quote, It might begin with little nodules which go on to ulcerate. The ulcers develop a foul discharge. The eyebrows fall out. The eyes become staring. The vocal cords become ulcerated. And the voice becomes hoarse. And the breath wheezes. The hands and feet always ulcerate. Slowly, the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growths. The average course of that kind of leprosy is nine years, and it ends in mental decay, coma, and ultimately death. Another kind. Leprosy might begin with the loss of all sensation in some part of the body. The nerve trunks are affected. The muscles waste away. The tendons contract until the hands are like claws. There follows ulceration of the hands and feet. And then comes the progressive loss of fingers and toes until in the end, a whole hand or a whole foot may drop off. The duration of that kind of leprosy is anything from 20 to 30 years. It is a kind of terrible, progressive death in which a man dies 
by inches. Now as horrible as the, the physical aspects of leprosy in the first century Jewish community was, the social aspects just added to the pain. Josephus, Roman slash Jewish historian of the first century, talking about leprosy in Palestine, it essentially meant that that person, from the sociological community standpoint, was considered dead. And the Bible, Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 to 46, says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If you get over your leprosy, that disease, depending on the degree of it, gets better and your skin is not opened up and pussy and all that anymore, or you just get healed of a horrific case, then the Bible laid out what you do at that point, which is you, you go to a priest and there's this extensive ceremonies that you go through in order to be accepted back into the religious community of worship. And it's laid out in Leviticus 14. Let me just give you a taste. Starting with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. And then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, then the priest shall, and he goes on and on and on and on in this whole eight-day process of declaring that person clean to be able to come back into the community and worship again. So there's a little backdrop. So here we are. Jesus enters... A village and there's these ten guys with torn clothing and their, and their heads uncovered and their hands over their lips. People walk by, unclean, unclean. Their bodies are eaten away. And they're real human beings like everybody else with feelings. They're eternal souls, and they're living this physical, social existence. And then they see Jesus. They know of Jesus. Everyone now in Palestine knows of this popular, itinerant preacher slash healer. That's, that's Jesus from Nazareth over there with His guys. And they, the text says, lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, He heard this, He immediately responded. Not the way He did back in chapter 5, where He touched the leper. 
But here, he responded immediately with his voice. Guys, go show yourselves to the priests. That's what healed lepers do. They're not healed. What are you talking about? Jesus' command here took a heart of faith to obey it. Now, at this point, what I'm, I'm going to do as we look at the rest of this, I'm going to assume that these 30-some years later when Luke is writing to the Gentiles, I'm going to assume that he intends for them and for us all some way to see ourselves in our natural, spiritually dead state as lepers before God. And so, like them, being ostracized from worship and from the community, from God's community, we are to sense the depth of our disease. We're to know and we are to experience what it is to be ostracized from God. To be put outside the camp. Listen to how Paul says it to Gentiles like most of us in here who have come to Christ in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were, past tense, like these lepers. You were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. To feel that to, to know that, to wake up to the reality of that is a blessing in disguise. If these lepers, yeah, I got a skin disease, but it is not that bad. If they thought like that, they never would have cried. Jesus is there. Have mercy on us. And there's lots of lepers in the world. And Jesus walks by through the preaching of the gospel. Not that bad. That's why so many this morning eat and drink and they're merry and they're playing softball right now. All the while, while judgment day is drawing closer and closer to their eternal souls. They ignore the ulcers of their soul. The first step for all spiritual lepers, the first move that we make for our eternal healing is to see and to know our desperate state. And condition before God. And then, as lepers, or we, 
We see it. We call out, Have mercy on me. Mercy. The word for give me what I don't deserve. See my plight and heal me. And here's the good news. God delights to show mercy to everybody who calls out for it. This is how later the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 10, verses 12 to 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, no matter what your background is. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because that's who God is. Do you remember Moses in Exodus? God, show me your glory. And God's going to respond in Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before Moses and He proclaimed. Now here's God going to show Himself His glory. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, God said, here's the essence of who I am. My holiness demands that I be just and show judgment towards sin. But my Mercy supersedes judgment by taking care of it justly and showing mercy. Mercy is God's predominant attribute. He loves, delights, is thrilled to pour out mercy. Upon those who cry out, Jesus, Master, show mercy on us. As we see in our text. And then Jesus speaks. Go, show yourselves to the priest. Okay, now you already know why he said that, right? He's being biblical. But you got to think, people are hearing it 
and the lepers, something's going in their head. What? I'm sorry, Jesus, but we can't do that. <laughs> we have leprosy. We're not healed. Heal us, and then we'll go. Not in this text. Jesus speaks. Faith obeys. And Jesus says to every leprous soul, Go! Repent and believe the gospel. These guys, they obeyed, they turned, they headed towards their local priest. They're, I don't know, five minutes down the road, quarter of a mile, and all of a sudden, Sam, your nose looks whole again. <gasps> My hands, as the text says, as they were going, they were cleansed, and there's only one condition to receive God's healing for our leprous souls. And that is to take God at His word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And lepers for two millennium have rejected it. And many have turned and took Him at His word and became eternally healed. Now, this day of this physical disease, it was a mass healing. These guys are walking down the road and they start to notice the toes of growing, they're growing back, and fingers and skin is becoming more like a baby's bottom now instead of these disgusting ulcers and growths. These nine Jews and one Samaritan were physically healed. Now you know that Samaritans are not Jews. Half-breeds, it goes way back centuries, and Jews and Samaritans hated each other's guts. The Jews thought that the Samaritans had religion, and they did have Moses, and they did this religion all wrong, and Jesus agreed with them. But here, one person, the Samaritan, an outsider to God's people, Jesus calls him in the text a foreigner. He was gripped in a different way than the other nine. He was overcome with gratitude, not gratitude to the healing, but gratitude to God, the healer. And there's a big 
difference. So this guy just, I can get to the priest later. He postponed it. Why? Because something within him propelled him to have to experience going back and loudly praising God and burying his face in the dirt at Jesus' feet, saying, Thank you! Verses 15 to 16. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell at Jesus, or fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. The other nine. Don't think that they're unthankful. They have a kind of thanks. They're like, they're like the five-year-old child at his birthday party. They're, they gifts, you better believe it, they're thrilled to have them. They don't really care whose name is on the gift and who it's from. You've got to remind, don't rip it open yet, Johnny. Who's it from? And it's too late. Give me another gift. The nine got what they worshipped. Physical healing. The one got saved. Remember, it was Jesus at the well with a Samaritan woman where He was seeking true worshipers. Who worship in spirit and truth. And now here, we see this lived out. Jesus with a Samaritan man at His feet. Worshiping. Glorifying God. With a heart of thanksgiving to Jesus. You see there in verse 15, at least in the ESV where it says, Praising God, no doubt that's what He's doing. But literally, in the Greek, it's the word for glorifying, which praising does glorify God. But the point is, the emphasis is on He was glorifying God. And in verse 18, Jesus says literally, was no one found to glorify God except this foreigner? Charles Spurgeon, a preacher, pastor in the 1800s in London, England, he points out that, quote, while ten men prayed, only one praised. There are far more who are prone to pray in a time of need than to praise God when He meets that need. Don't we all see ourselves there somewhat? Oswald Chambers said, quote, The great difficulty spiritually is to concentrate on God. And it is His blessings that make it difficult. Troubles nearly always make us look to God. 
His blessings are apt to make us look elsewhere. Like the nine. But this one guy, something happened to him that was more than physical healing. He was encountered by Christ. He did not worship God's gifts. He worshipped God. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet in praise of God. How anybody hears the melody, sees the lyrics of the gospel on the screen on Sunday morning and just stands with mouth closed is baffling. This guy was in a perfect position. On his face, in humility, and happy, giving thanks to Jesus. Praising God with a loud voice. He had no inhibition at that moment. And he fell on his face. At Jesus' feet, giving him thank yous. And then Jesus asks three short questions that are loaded with implications. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten. Cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus, in his human nature, human nature does not have omniscience in Jesus. His divine nature never lost it. But okay, we'll get into that right at the moment. But somehow, in his human nature, I think he must have been somewhat amazed. Where are the other nine? Only one has come back to glorify God. I so much more wanted to do not just healing their bodies. I wanted to give them the ultimate blessing. Just one? Okay. And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The other nine, they were blinded to the person who is the giver of the gift of healing. They are thankful like that five-year-old at the birthday party who really does not care what the card says or who wrote it or who paid for the gift. It's about the gift. Healing. Money, rent, mortgage, children. That's the thing 
Jesus is completely unsatisfied with that response of thankfulness. He's after the heart. He has come to create from sinful human hearts persons who worship and praise and glorify God. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. And that's what he purchased. And he got a foretaste of it in this leper. And so Jesus draws a line in the sand between the nine and the one Samaritan. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well, the ESV puts it. I think he means something more than that. And a lot of scholars agree with me. In the Greek, the word that's translated there, made you well, is the same word for salvation. And it can mean physical healing. You can depend on the context. But if I translate it literally, it is, go your way, your faith has saved you, sozo. His soul was converted to Christ. That's why he meant this to this one differently than he meant to the nine. Okay, do you see what's happening here? This guy's physical healing turned his head to Jesus, to the Savior, to God, the healer. The other nine, their physical healing turned their head to their physical healing. Or whatever else you want to put in there. Their bank accounts. Or... Got it. Happy. Thrilled. Praise and thanksgiving mean thank you. Thank you. That dynamic towards God is at the heart of what authentic saving faith is. The one thing I know for sure, we're all broken down here and, and all of our faith is imperfect. One day it'll be perfect. I do know this. There will be no ingrates in heaven. If you have been snatched out of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Christ, if your sins have been washed away and you have been cleansed, guaranteed eternal life, and you have food to eat tonight, a car that works, then don't be like the nine. But daily have a heart of thanksgiving and praise for all His gifts. Down the road, the Holy Spirit will say to us through the writer to Hebrews, to all Christian people, to all church people, 
Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. In our text, here's the thing. The guy's at Jesus' feet. Jesus is not about to. He never will be. Jesus, let me say, I'll say it bluntly. Jesus will not sin and take this experience away from the leper at his feet. I'm positive he could not. Why? There's two reasons why he would never do that to him or anybody. Actually, it's really only one reason with two sides of the same coin. The first reason is that what was happening here in the heart, manifesting it in this guy's actions, was that he was glorifying God. And Jesus will never stop that. You can bank on it. He's all about that. Okay, that's one side of it. The other side of the coin, why he won't take that experience away from this guy is because of the joy, the happiness, the experience of releasing it in the way the guy did. Is really important to Jesus because he loved the guy. And why are those the one and the same? Because, because if this guy did not do that from his heart, but faked, oh, yeah, I was supposed to give thanks. Okay, that's right, I'm a Christian. Or, okay, thank you. If he faked it, it would not have given glory to God. As the great Westminster Shorter Catechism of the 1600s puts it, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You can't separate them. That is the heart of the Christian life. It is amazing, and I did, for, I used to do this for a while, I used to be, be in church and sit and I'd, I'd do this with my wife at times. I, I'd say, look at, listen, listen, listen to this person because they're a new believer. It is amazing how adult converts, usually, new believers speak about God and their experience before the church teaches it out of them. It's just, uh, it's amazing. I lived such a life and I had everything and, and then here I was at 38 years old and Jesus grabbed a hold of me and I never dreamed there could be such happiness. And it just flows out. They fall down again and again. 
naturally, meaning from new birth, at Jesus' feet. But you hang around long enough, you'll calm down. You'll get it. Ah, the way you talk all the time. Gosh, I'm so happy Jesus does this for me. I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited. I'm so thankful. You, you know, you, you got to grow up sometime and realize that Christianity is not all about you. It's about God. And it's about what God now wants you to do in the Christian life. So, calm down. When I first became a Christian 30, what is it? Two years ago? Golly, I'm old. God. It, it was the essence of my daily life to praise God. To, to, to wake up and be amazed. I'm a Christian. I can't. This is unbelievable. Not to praise Him, not to sing, and not to do 143 other things of my life that were now new to me because they were a job description that a boss gives because he needs someone to do that for him. It was because it was my nature. It was flowing out of new birth. It was because it was my joy to turn on the valve and release praise, thanksgiving, adoration. Let me say it now this way slowly. I want you to follow me. It intuitively, you know the word intuit? It means women, you're supposed to know, they just don't know. It's not objective out there, just they know <laughs> something. It intuitively intuitively seemed that that dynamic of joy pursuing it in the Christian life was natural in the Christian life. And, and early on, being an incessant Bible reader, there was nothing popping off the Scripture that ever challenged that intuition. It seemed to confirm it. Like, like the leper here. He didn't have time to go take a class on Christianity 101 and get this type of action and thanksgiving and praise and humiliation taught out of him. And so and I'm going to be a little bit autobiographical for a few minutes. I was 11 years down the road of my Christian life. I was six years into my higher education in theology. And now there was finally growing a tension between what I intuited to be the essence of the Christian life. To wake up and say, I'm going to go for my happiness, my joy. Tell me what to do, God. Praise me. Okay, you got it. There was a tension growing between the pursuit of my own happiness and theologies which would somehow separate that, your happiness, from know what God really wants to do or for you to do in life. 
me say it again. A tension between what seemed to be a Holy Spirit-driven desire for true happiness in everything. Why do you read the Bible, Joe? Because I want to be happy. Why do you give 10% starting point of your income? Because I want to be happy. Why do you go to this prayer meeting at a different church? Because my church didn't have one every week for two hours. Because I want to be happy. Why do you spend all Saturday evangelizing people? Because I want to be happy. Was the real answer. But now there's a tension that's growing in my life at this time between no, 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 no. That's one thing. Something separate from that, what God wants you to do, is the Christian life. And I cannot overstate the significance Dang it. That my professor, Daniel Fuller, had on my life, my thinking, and actually right now, what I'm doing, preaching. <sighs> Starting in 1993, he led me on a journey to see that those for born-again people that new natural inclination to seek, be after real happiness, joy, long-term, to glorify God by seeking to enjoy Him. He led me on a journey to see that that is not just the natural intuition of what the Spirit produces, but that it is everywhere blatantly biblical. That that pursuit is a mandate for all believers. In spring of 93, in Dr. Fuller's class, Gospel and Law, we're all commanded to read Blaise Pascal, particularly this quote. All men seek happiness. Pascal lived in the 1600s, great mathematician, got converted at about age, late 20s, early 30s. Okay? All men, here's a statement, seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end, that goal, happiness. The cause of some going to war, and of others avoiding war, is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will of man never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. And then Dr. Fuller challenged us to 
prove Pascal wrong. Nothing worked. And to today, nothing for me still works. In fact, it began to seem more and more self-evident that I realize it's impossible. And then that led not just to that truth, all human beings act and move and will in order to seek their happiness, you can define that even this way, as an absence of pain because when my tooth hurts and I, I got to get to the dentist, please do a root canal like, what, about a month ago? Just please do that. I want you to do that. I'm seeking happiness. Or you just say it in the reverse, the absence of pain. That's why people blow their brains out. Okay. That led not just to that reality, but to the contention that in to pursue your happiness is biblically commanded. So we had to read also the sermon of C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And what I'm about to read for you, I must have read 20 times during that semester and grilling Dr. Fuller after class over and over on it. Quote, Lewis says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to our desire. Lewis goes on. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant in the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when all the while infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. And from there, 
going through Scripture and taking sentence after sentence after sentence in the Bible at its face value just confirmed again and again and again and again for me that C.S. Lewis was dead right. It just made total sense that that primal urge, I want to be happy, was not against the gospel call. Sin is when we think lesser things than God are the end of our happiness. And that's why it's called idolatry. But up to that point, 20 years ago in 19... 93, I had never had anyone say so blatantly what we all know to be intuit, or we intuit as believers, until Dr. Fuller started saying it to me. And through Pascal and C.S. Lewis and others, three months before my wedding, my life was being gloriously rocked. These giants were saying, we don't seek happiness nearly enough. And usually in all the wrong places. They were saying, the call of the Christian life is to pursue your own true happiness. They were saying, our desire for happiness It's not too strong, it's much too weak, and that's why we fail to find it in the only person it can be found, in God Himself, through Jesus Christ. Now, as we're we're closing, children, they told me, you always say that in a long time. Notice in our text, with Jesus' questions, where are the other nine? Why did no one else return but this one to offer praise to God and thanksgiving? Those questions are a crystal clear approval. You ought to praise God. He ought to thank me. Jesus. And you see, throughout Scripture, God commands thank me. Praise me. And He does it because He loves us. No, no, it doesn't make sense. You can't command somebody if you love them. Really. You never commanded your child not to run into a street. His command is after our greater and deeper joy. Tasted In part, as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, producing it as a down payment now, and then to bathe in it unhinderedly 
for all eternity. Now, C.S. Lewis, he had a problem in his early Christianity, being converted to Christ in, I think, his early 30s. He had a problem with God saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, thank me, until, and I'm going to pick up, Lewis says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, approval, or of giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Athletes praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards to supremely valuable what we delight to do. What indeed we cannot help doing about everything else. We value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. End quote. Christians, with, with all the pains, setbacks, tragedies, and sufferings that all the rest of the world have, Christians are a happy, grateful people. And that heart of thanks is at the center of authentic faith. I am closing. Two minutes. I just wanted I just wanted to hear. Because Paul writes to us. He writes to the church. Hear him. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, because He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And whatever you do, whether in word 
Or indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Come on up. So every day, wake up and refuse to be like the nine lepers walking down the road without turning around. But wake up and intend to seek your happiness by being like the one leper who thought clearly about reality and God's gifts and thus felt deeply thankful and expressed it. And we'll do that together as we're singing and passing out the cup and the bread for those of us who have been baptized and are believers. We will hold and pray over together, remembering why anything in this sermon about our eternal happiness is possible. Because Christ's body was broken as a sacrifice taking away our sin. Amen.